Welcome to the Southern Naturalist Podcast, where we explore the interconnections of nature by providing the listeners, you, an immersive experience of what it feels like to be on the trail with us. My name is M.A. Thomas, and this is my dad, Bob Thomas. Hi. We're both professors at Loyola University, New Orleans, and naturalists and fascinated by nature and all she has to offer. We want to excite you about venturing into nature and enjoying the outdoors. Folks in the South enjoy their experiences year-round, and encounters with plants and animals vary with the seasons. We have many stories to share with you. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Loyola University Center for Environmental Communication. Dive deeper into the content we cover by visiting our website at lucec.loyno.edu. So on this episode, Dad is driving right now, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and we are about to get to the Causeway Bridge. And um, for all of you people who've been around a long time, you know that there used to be a uh, toll booth, but there it no longer is. So we're just going to drive on up, and here we go. We're on the bridge. I have a question for you. Did you know that the Causeway Bridge in the New Orleans area is 24 miles long. It's the longest bridge over water in the world. It's what connects New Orleans to the Mandeville-Covington area. And we're going to talk about that today on our episode that focuses on a naturalist crossing the lake. And so this is specific about Lake Pontchartrain and about the Causeway Bridge, but a lot of the things we're going to talk about today you can notice on other bridges, right, Dad? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tell us about um, about the lake and about uh, who takes care of it, who um, are the stewards of the lake, et cetera. Good. Uh, well, you know, uh, it's always good for big bodies of water like this. Now, this 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 uh, area is 24 miles across north to south and about 40 miles from east to west. But on the west side, it's connected to Lake Maurepas, which is a good-sized body of water. And on the, on the east side, it's connected to Lake Catherine. It's uh, to Lake Bourne. And then uh, eventually? To the Gulf of to Mexico. To the Gulf, yeah. yeah. In fact, there's a lot of really cool historical um, implications and, and um, really activity that occurred in the lake with um, the Bienville and Iberville, mm-hmm. the brothers, and mm-hmm. um, with the Battle of New Orleans and all kinds of really cool historical oh, yeah. implications. Yeah, Large historical area. What's important to understand is that that large body of water is surrounded by about one and a half million people mm, living yeah. in a number of different communities. And of course, where people live, they spill things. Mm-hmm. Things run from those. Waste runs from there. And so back in the, especially in the 70s and going into the 80s, uh, it was a, a, a pretty rough place to get into the water. Yeah. Most people I mean, did up, not. Yeah, you didn't want to swim in no, the nobody lake. Nobody went out and swam in the lake. Now, if you go back 20 or 30 years before that, it was a very common place for everybody to go swim in the lake. But the population was a lot smaller. There was a lot less construction and a lot fewer people living there f- to handle waste and that sort of thing. So um, uh, so what shifted? I mean, what well, the, po- the population grew to one and a half million. And, and along with that came people flushing toilets. Yeah. Uh, 
and that always makes its way somewhere to the to the water. Uh, dairies being built on the North Shore uh, to supply milk to the 1.5 million people and beyond. Uh, there were lots of other manufacturing companies and things up and down the river that are real important to the economy of America. Uh, people, uh, people being people, people pouring things down drains that drain into the lake without even thinking about what the ultimate destination is. Is that is. about the same time we were dredging for the, yeah. um, the shells and things in the lake? So it was always yeah. murky in its color. So yeah. what, so I guess really what, what shifted in our thinking or what, what was it that the impetus that people were like, okay, we're done. We need this resource. We want to be in this res- this water. We want to play in here. We want yeah. it for recreation. We want it to have wildlife. Yes. Well, I can tell you as a sailor, when I would sail on Lake Pontchartrain, it looked like I was sailing on chocolate milk. It was always stirred up because of the shell dredging that was going on. Uh, it didn't smell really good. There were always stories of people getting in the water and having some kind of a skin rash or something like that. So finally, people just said enough is enough and too much is too much. Good gosh, we got into the 80s where people were really about cleaning up the environment. And so uh, uh, we uh, formed uh, in this area the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation which was a quasi-government type organization. I mean, it was a nonprofit, but it also had a a government connection to it with government funding. And for years, that organization focused on cleaning up the lake. The goal was to allow people to swim. The target of knowing when you've been successful was when people could safely swim in the lake. Right, without getting sick. Right, and they did that by the 90s. And um, uh, and the water started to clear up. They stopped the shell dredging. Uh, they uh, 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 EPA really came down hard on all the communities around the lake about their sewage running into the lake and uh, things like that. And so it started to cl- to cleanse itself. So that organization has now morphed into the Pontchartrain Conservancy. And that is the organization that everybody here considers the conservator, the steward of the lake. If you have any issues about it, any concerns, That's you, you call go to. them. That's okay. the go-to group. So we're, we keep saying the lake, the lake, the lake, but Lake Pontchartrain isn't actually a lake, right? That's correct. I mean, okay, That's, so tell yeah. us about that. What what actually is it and, and why? Well, it, it, was, it was named Lake Pontchartrain uh, to honor... Uh, a French dignitary by uh, Bienville when he and his brother came in and and basically brought Europe to New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, uh, because it looks like a lake. I mean, when you look at it, it's just a big body of water. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's huge. If you, It's 40 right. miles a- across and then, you know, long. long and yeah. then north to south is 24 miles. Right. We know the bridge, especially right. at that, that place. It's a huge body of water. Yeah, but the definition of a lake is a body of water that's surrounded by land. And so to the casual observer, that's what this was. But the geologists have now explained to us where Lake Pontchartrain, which, by the way, we're going to call it lake in our conversation here. But it's actually what? It's actually uh, an estuarine embayment. Okay. So what happened was that there was a time when what's now the north shore of of, uh, Lake Pontchartrain was the southern coast of what we now call the United States. And the water beyond that was nice and blue and clear and beautiful. Yes. Gulf of Mexico. And we're talking like 
6,000 years ago. Yeah, about longer. between four and 6,000 years ago. And so what happened was about that time, a bunch of dynamics were changing in the Mississippi River. Uh, a lot of uh, sediment was coming down the river. It started to settle out and the water became shallower. And then because of the movement of the and the and the, the creation of subdeltas and the like, there was some some land that was put closer to the Gulf, while water still stayed a little bit open toward the land. And then that area near the land, which is now north of what we now call New Orleans, began to sink. And so seawater and Came river in. water from a number of rivers ran into it. Now, by definition. When you have an opening to the sea, the saltwater sea on one end, and you've got freshwater rivers into the other end, you're an estuary. Okay, so that's so estuary that's, embayment. Yes, that's really what it is. But again, the name is the name. Yeah. And uh, and we call it Lake Pontchartrain, and people just refer to the lake. Well, tell so okay so if that's the way it was formed, and we still refer to it as an estuary embayment, in, you know, I mean, if the actual, if mm-hmm. we're being uh, literal there. Um, does the lake have salt? I mean, are there salinities? Mm-hmm. Is, is there salt water in there? Because yes. it still connects yeah. to the Gulf. Right. To the east end, it's more salty. To the west end, it's more uh, fresh. And when you have, like, but, but like all estuaries, it's variable. It's one of the things that makes an estuary one of the most magnificent places on earth for productivity is because you have so much variability in the availability of nutrients and the kind of things that critters out there that are breaking them down and putting them back into the ecosystem and so in the summer we tend to get relatively strong southeastern winds that'll blow for sometime weeks at a time when that's going on lots it gets salty as a matter of fact i mean i we used to see uh because of complications of other salt getting in there it wasn't uncommon to see uh bottlenose dolphins in the lake are to we know see. bull sharks. We've bull, heard bull, bull sharks, sharks and are still, manatees. They're still there, and we'll mention that. But uh, manatees do come visit us, and so they'll, we'll get a handful of them every summer that come in. And uh, and I remember driving across the causeway one time and seeing about a six-foot tarpon jump out of the wow. water within eyesight. Wow. Uh, that was not uncommon for people to see those sorts of things. Now, it's much fresher now yeah. because what's happened is we've closed off some of the conduits of, of – high salinity salt water into this area so it started to freshen up which is better overall for the quality of the lake but when you get those southeast winds it starts to to get saltier and so salt water critters will come in and to me that's a pretty cool thing okay so how deep is the lake if you said you saw a six foot tarpon jump well it's actually i mean there are some some holes out there where it's supposedly, allegedly, 80 feet deep. Oh, because aren't mostly you, it's shallow. Wouldn't you, in a tarpon? I mean, I always think deep water mm. when you hear of tarpon. No, not necessarily. No, okay. no. If you want to fish tarpon down in the Caribbean, you're going to be fishing in pretty doggone shallow really? water. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm off on that then. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but you see them. You know, because you've seen them scuba diving yeah. in Belize. You see them right on the edge of the shelf where it's dropping down thousands of feet. Right. But they also come into those shallow areas very commonly and so tarpon fishing is big in southern florida and uh in in relatively shallow areas so anyway but it's one of the markers of the of the quality of the lake when you see these animals so it's always fun to see them out there yeah 
Um, and we're seeing them more and more is what, I mean, yeah. well, it depends. I mean, if it's a saltwater species, yeah. we're seeing more and more wildlife. Exactly. Because we've got, because the lake is, yeah. is uh, relatively right. clean and healthy. And we even get casual visitors. I mean, we had, for a while there, uh, we had uh, brown boobies coming in, which is purely a Caribbean bird. Yeah. But we had a whole bunch of them nesting yeah. out on, on the, well, excuse me, colonizing on the causeway. And people would put would put on emails all the time about well I saw one today at mile marker 23.2 and I saw three of them flying by the water at uh, at 19.7 yeah so this is on eBird right yeah on we're, eBird we're, uh, but, the original yeah. uh, citizen science place yeah. to but just our but just our emails birds. I mean you'd get emails on on LA bird which is a, an email system for birders to alert people of what they're seeing where. So you, so what, what we're saying here is you get a wide variety of critters in a, a habitat like that that's got variability. Yeah. It's really better than just being a purely freshwater uh, lake. And it's purely a, it's a saltwater. It's an estuary. Yeah. So okay. you get much, many more nutrients, much more diversity, and a totally different type of ecosystem. Yeah, and it's relatively shallow, so it can be yeah. a good nursery ground or um, for some of these critters too. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it averages throughout the lake about eighteen feet. Okay. But there are some deep areas where they've dug out to do other things, but uh, generally I consider it pretty shallow. And again, as a sailor, uh, I've been on it uh, sailing when a storm comes in, and it can get real rough, yep. real, fast real fast because yeah. it's so shallow. Yep. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the other interesting things that maybe people don't know about the uh, about Lake Pontchartrain, like about faults yeah. and about mm-hmm. the what's known as the Pontchartrain Divide. So let's mm-hmm. talk about some of those things. Well, faults, we, we can just say a couple of words about them. Uh, it's been really mapped out. Uh, look, there's been a lot of geological mapping down here because of the oil industry. Mm, yep. You know, they've been looking at this place for a long Have time. Have they ever drilled in... in- Lake oh, yeah. Pontchartrain? Oh, yeah. sure, okay. sure. Yeah, but it's, it's pretty much protected now. There's no drilling out there now. But, uh, but there, are, there are maps that are available uh, that, that actually show you where the faults have been identified throughout the lake. And there's actually two bridges that cross the lake, one uh, being near Slidell on the east end and, and then the causeway in the middle of the, of the lake, and uh, where there's actually an offset a little bit, just a few inches where a fault ran underneath there and it made everything move a little mm. bit. Not dangerous at all. All been repaired, all being watched. We have an, uh, the um, uh, New Orleans Expressway Commission is a commission, a, a state-level commission, that oversees uh, the operation of the causeways and the other highways and byways. And th- this is from the continental, uh, the plates, right? Moving? No, is no, that, this, is that this, what's actually, causing it's, it? It's above that. What's happening? Oh, it's above it. Okay. What's happening? It causes the faults here. Is that about seven miles below our feet here in New Orleans? Uh, is the Luan Salt Bed? It's a massive, massive, thick bed of salt. Huh. Now, salt is overlain by a lot of sediment that's come down that river over the last six thousand years. And you're saying part of the lake and our city is on top of that? Oh yeah. Okay. Totally over it. And, uh, and and notice Seven that that's uh, yeah that's that's pretty deep, but the thing is that the pressure from all that sediment on top will cause things to shift, and when something happens down there and it shifts, it's going to be translated to something at the surface. Now we know what happens in California, 
if you have a shift there, you can have massive, massive earthquakes yeah. because it's all rock and everything else. Well, here it's all sluffy mud. Yeah. And uh, uh, and but there are people I know a lot of people who have have sensed. They knew that they they went. Oh my gosh, what was that? I think that was an earthquake. Huh. And everything kind of just wobbles. But it doesn't, it doesn't drop. It doesn't cause tsunamis. It doesn't cause big problems. But well, there's, we no, separ- there's no rock to separate. Like, right. I mean, that's what right. the earthquakes are. But it's are- the salt, but it's way down. Way down, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so those faults are kind of interesting. And it's, uh, for, for people who are interested in geology, you might want to Google that and uh, just put faults in Lake Pontchartrain and a bunch of things will show up. Um, and then uh, uh, the other thing is that uh, around the edges of the lake, and this is very important, all around the edges of the lake, there are what I call pocket marshes, marshes of pretty good size but, but not humongous uh, that are connected to the lake. And what they do is they, for, they, they perform a lot of functions. But one of the main functions is they are the nursery grounds for the fisheries in the lake. The lake is very important fisheries-wise. And so a lot of things spend some of their time, even our pogey fish, Menhaden, Gulf Menhaden, that are a big, 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 it's the biggest tonnage fisheries in Louisiana, uh, and, and it's fished offshore during the winter. But right now, there are big, gigantic schools of pogey back in our marshes and in the lake going through part of their life cycle. And so it's very important if you destroy those pocket uh, uh, marshes, you're going to destroy the offshore fisheries because those offshore menhaden and everything are part of the food chain. They're important to lots of different things, but they're also important economically to our nation. I want to go back to something you said. You said pockets of marshes, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, that makes sense that those are nursery grounds. But when you say pockets, like I just, I Googled um, Marsh Bayou St. John and Lake Pontchartrain. Is that so? And, and listeners, feel free to do that because that's where Bayou St. John and the lake come together. And I know that there's a marsh restoration mm-hmm. right there that we have worked on after yeah. um, Katrina. But is that what you mean? Or do you mean like an, on a larger scale? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, like people in urban areas talk about pocket parks. Okay. They're, they're so just small parks in a neighborhood, not things like in New Orleans. You wouldn't call City Park a pocket park. It's huge. It's huge, yeah. Uh, it's one of the, I think, the fourth largest in the country. Uh, Audubon Park is huge. Uh, Joe Brown Park is large, uh, not pocket parks. But then we have little pocket parks in the neighborhoods that have swings and uh, other recreational type things. So so I, I, I look at these, these uh, uh, you can look at a map of Lake Pontchartrain and you can see all these marsh areas. And, and they're pretty good size, but they're not comparable to the major marshes that we have along our coastline. But not as small as something like a, no. just a human no. No. reconstructed marsh. Okay. No, the one you talked about at the mouth of, of Bayou, uh, Bayou St. John, Bayou yep. St. John is, is a, I'd call that for sure a pocket because it's small. Small. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. We take students there all the time to study and talk about how, how, how the lake works in reaction yeah. and how New Orleans was formed and everything else. But, uh, but no, these other ones are pretty good size. Uh, to a lot of people, they'd be real proud of them. A lot okay. of states, those would be the biggest marshes they have yeah. in their state. But, uh, but they're very important, vitally important for cleansing the water that goes into the lake, for treating anything that's in that water, for 
being a nursery grounds, uh, for supplying other areas with seeds and the like, it, they're very, very important. Okay, so that's at, at the water level. So I also mentioned, and I want you to talk to us more about what's called the Pontchartrain Divide, because yeah. I feel like that is something that is, you know, if you use birds as an example, that's mm-hmm. still different pockets or, or differences associated with the lake. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about that. Yeah, well, again, because of the expanse of, of the lake, and because of where we're located on the uh, Mississippi River Flyway for all the migra- migrants that come through here every year both ways, um, that lake acts sort of as a, as a filter, if you will. And uh, so local birders talk about, when they talk about the Lake Pontchartrain Divide, uh, they're making reference to the fact that there's an awful lot more biodiversity of birds north of the lake than on the south side of the lake. That's during most of the year. Now, when the migration is going on, everybody's got to come through here. Yeah. So birding in, in New Orleans and down along our coast is some of the best in the country. But, uh, but that's what the Lake Pontchartrain Divide is because it's basically a couple of different ecosystems that are separated by a vast area of water. So birds kind of filter out where they want to be. Now, at the same time, we've got another filter in here, another divide in north of the lake, and that is the Mississippi River is to the left side, the west side of north of the lake, going up toward, toward through Baton Rouge up up to uh, ultimately Minnesota. And uh, to the east, we have the Pearl River. And beyond that to the east, we have Florida and Alabama and Mississippi. And there's an awful lot of animals that that's their divide there. Yeah. They do not get across that river uh, Mississippi River Basin. Some of them stop before they get to, to the Pearl River, but others can make it through through that area. And we call those the Florida parishes because there was a time when they belonged, when the, the Spanish owned the this Flo- area, yeah, they belonged to Florida. So there's some neat ecological things just by geography and by geographic history of, of rivers and how they've changed and changed courses and the land that built out below them. And also, you said the different ecosystems, so like the different um, types of plants and um, like when you have a, um, uh, what is it, the longleaf pine mm-hmm. stands versus, mm-hmm. you know, the bottomland yeah. hardwoods, et cetera. Right. No, okay. all very, very, uh, very important. So, okay, so then let me flip it on you and say, so how does then the presence of the lake impact our ecosystem? If these birds and these animals are, mm-hmm. they're different, so... How does that impact us? And um, tell us just like some examples of, of sure. that. Okay. Well, let me, let me give you a, a human value, <laughs> uh, something that we all feel and we all know here. Uh, remember that lake is shallow right. and it's broad. And, uh, and, and in our part of the world, uh, winter is brought to us by the arrival of polar fronts coming from the northwest. And you can watch them as you get into fall. And you're watching the, the evening news, and you're seeing them get closer and closer and closer. And sometimes they'll bump back again, but then they'll get closer and closer. And winter in New Orleans arrives when a polar front reaches New Orleans, and it'll drop quite a few degrees. Well, here's the deal. All during the summer, right now, this lake is warming up because it's exposed to, right now, the, the temperature in New Orleans uh, in June of 2022 
is it's averaging like ninety-seven. Yeah, between it's, it's ninety-five been and really hot. We haven't yeah. gotten our normal rains. Right, we haven't gotten our rains, so it's it's pretty doggone warm. Well, what it's doing is it's heating that lake up, and so let's say let's project now when we go to the fall when those polar fronts start coming in. They arrive on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain in Mandeville and Madisonville and Covington and towns like that uh, much earlier than it gets here. And the reason is because there's nothing but land above them. And so when a polar front rolls in, it just rolls in. And if you watch the news at night, the 10 o'clock news at night, you find out in those early times of the arrival of those first polar fronts on North Shore, you'll, you'll notice big drops in temperature at night north shore but probably 10 to 15 degrees warmer on south shore yeah because you've got all that warm water between the uh, two sides of the it lake down and it's like a, a, a for those of you that are old enough to remember what a hot water bottle is i can remember growing up uh, in the day <laughs> and i remember my mother always had a hot water bottle and if i didn't feel well she would say, oh, here, let me get a hot water bottle, and she'd bring it in. She'd say, put this on your tummy, and you'll feel better later, and miraculously always did. Right. But, uh, but everybody had a hot water bottle in their house, so that was just a common thing. Well, that's what's happening with Lake Pontchartrain. It's the hot water bottle for New Orleans because it stays warm longer, but eventually as you get deeper into winter, it starts to cool down, and it finally gets to the point where those polar fronts – can come all the way can come all the way across um, uh, the lake and enter New Orleans, and so then New Orleans gets colder. Yeah. And so about mid, you know, right after Christmas, the temperatures on South Shore and North Shore are the same. And then here comes the uh, we're getting into spring, starts warming up, but you've got that cold body of water sitting there now it's a cold water bottle and so so if you watch the temperatures they're higher north of the lake than they are in new orleans so we stay cool longer sometime into june sometime into june you're really still cool at night doesn't feel like it right now no No. (laughs) this is not one of those sometimes right but the reality is that it is uh it really that's the way it affects humans all of our architecture all of our HVAC development and everything that we have in homes here is all designed because of that factor. And so it's very important to us. But it also affects the livelihoods of plants and animals and the blooming ability of plants and survival during the winter of plants on this side of the, of the lake uh, compared to those on the other side. So yeah. it's very important econ- uh, ecologically. Let's talk about some of the wildlife and um, that we haven't talked about and, and dive a little deeper into some of the ones that we have talked mm-hmm. about. Um, I think one of the, the, let's start with one that I love because you can find them everywhere and people are always amazed when I tell them a little bit of story, but let's start with what's called the Rangia clam mm-hmm. and Google Rangia clam or just think about walking around your neighborhood or in a park where there's some dirt and you see Y'all know what oysters, everyone knows oyster shell, but something that is obviously a clam that is white that's just always in our substrate in the New Orleans region. Yeah. 
And there's a reason for that. So tell us about that. Yeah, Rangia, R-A-N-G-I-A. And uh, these are clams that live in brackish marshes, which most of coastal Louisiana, is, yep. it has some salt content in and the marshes. And that's what we used to dredge out of the out lake, of the lake. Right? Okay. right there was a it was a big business yeah big uh part of the economy and the reason that it was such a big business was because traditionally in new orleans when you do construction of big buildings or houses or anything else people would would like to use you know in, in a lot of parts of the country they use gravel some kind of gravel and that's fine if you're if you're on on uh, solid soil that's got rock uh Rocks bedrock, yeah. bedrock, yeah. Yeah. In the side area. note, um, we definitely need to do an episode for people who don't know about the way in which New Orleans, our land, was created right. from the uh, traversing, if you want to say, uh, Mississippi River. But sure. that's a note for another day. So basically, we're not on any bedrock. No. Here, no, okay. No. So we need help with creating our land. Yeah. So, so what you want to do is you you need to have something on which to build buildings. Now, I remember when I first moved here. Uh, there were always people telling me, well, you know, uh, here's a building down in the French Quarter. It's uh, three or four stories tall. And in order to, uh, to be able to build a building that tall in New Orleans, they had to use bales of cotton as a foundation because otherwise it would just sink into the ground. Bales of cotton? Yeah, that's, that was what people used to always say. Well, we found that that's wrong. Okay. But what they did do <laughs> was that they used a lot of cypress planking, big, big timbers of cypress to spread out the weight when they would build these mm -hmm. things that's and the way cypress they did it in the degrade, old days doesn't degrade fast so. old cypress does not okay. new cypress degrades in a heartbeat oh, okay. that's another complication but uh but but no it, but it worked very well uh but as buildings got bigger and bigger and bigger that's when we went to putting in pilings and the like that go deep down and they're called friction pilings most of the time because, again, they don't hit bedrock at the bottom. But in some places, they'll go down and hit old beaches, sand, mm. and that's as far as they have to go to support almost any size building. So it's a real engineering technology that is important here in New Orleans, the way we do it. But in the old days, we needed something solid to build on. So for, for, for homes and things like that, uh, we found that it was really good to use Range of clams because you know what a, everybody out there can imagine what a clam shell looks like. Well, when you pile them up, they kind of cup together like if you just bend your fingers a little bit and slam them together. That's a cup, and you can pull on your arms and not pull them apart. And well, he's actually doing that right yeah, now, everyone. Right. So, <laughs> so no. So, uh, so that's what when you put in a big pile of range of clams, they would hooked together like that, and then that would dis distribute the weight of the building that you were building, and they were fine. And if you paved a road, you had to have some kind of a substrate to build the road. Now, we're not known for our wonderful roads here. No. They've all got potholes and everything else. And we can talk about that in we our can talk about that of the Mississippi time. River. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but, but the reality is that, that it was better than nothing. If yeah. we hadn't done it, if we, had, if, if we had tried pea gravel, like it's used in a lot of parts of the country, they would just all slip apart and you'd have right. a hole immediately. Uh, if we, uh, well, also, we don't have pea gravel here. We have yeah. rangia clams, right. so why not use them? Well, yeah, that's right. Oh, Dad, look over there. You see all those ripples right there on the top of the um, the water? You see, I mean, don't crash, but can you can you look real quick since you're driving? 
Sure. You think I, those are pogies? Pretty sure they are at this time of the year because the pogie are really getting dense in the lake right now. Pogie are those menhaden fish, Gulf menhaden fish, that are out in the Gulf of Mexico. They get about uh, 9 or 10 inches long. Uh, they, they swim in schools of millions. Uh, it's a big economic generator uh, in our country. We grind them up. We extract oils from them. Uh, the, the, the fish meal that's ground up goes into a wide variety of things, everything from fertilizer to, to dog food. I was going to say dog food. I think, uh, yeah. uh, all sorts of animals are eating it uh, in, their, in their food. Uh, but it's, uh, we feed it to catfish and catfish farms. And for a long, long time, it was one of the primary foods for growing chicken. So pogey's important. Yeah, very, very important. All uh, right, um, let me just hit a couple other yeah. fishes. Okay. Striped mullet, black drum, redfish, speckled trout. Yeah. What about them? They're, They're in the all lake. in the lake? They're in the lake, yeah. And uh, for those of you that are not from the New Orleans area, uh, red drum, redfish, uh, and our uh, speckled trout are the beloved restaurant fish. You, uh, you can eat them all the time. And then there's another one there, uh, black drum, which puppy drum is a small black drum. And those are all over the menus now yeah. because uh, you, you, you can't commercially harvest redfish anymore. But people are going out and catching them with a rod and reel and catching speckled yeah. trout as well. Okay. So um, they're very important to the ecosystem here, but they're also very important to people. I mentioned bull shark at the beginning of this episode, and I want to touch on a little bit more here um, because we have had bull sharks not only be seen, but make, uh, well, bite um, people in the lake. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and, and why we shouldn't be afraid of bull yeah. sharks. Uh, we, don't, we don't really have a lot of shark attacks here, but the sharks are always in the lake, at least during the summer. What, what they do is they breed offshore, and then as soon as the babies are born, they make a beeline for this lake, the babies do. And they come in here and because it's a... Protected. It, it, well, it's not only protected, but it's full of food for a little shark that's, you know, 12 inches, 15 inches long. Food is everywhere. And so they grow very fast. And, uh, and then when they're ready to reproduce, when they become adults, they leave again. But there are fit, large sharks that are caught out there sometime, not the big hefty ones like I've seen in, in uh, the tropics here uh, or, or in other parts of the country. But uh, I wouldn't doubt that they're not there. Nothing would tell me to say that they're never there. Uh, but, uh, but they typically are not feeding when they're in here. Just the babies are feeding. So, but be, people do sight them, and every once in a while somebody catches one. Yeah. And, and, um, and that they accidentally brush up against somebody, they might bite in reaction. Mm, I mean, just maybe, maybe not yeah, often. Yeah, no. The incidences are so. It's not low. something we worry about at all. All right. Well, let's talk about something adorable. Let's talk about a sea turtle, mm -hmm. specifically the Kemp's Ridley yeah. sea turtle, which is an endangered species. Yes, the most endangered, and uh, and we're in the range of them, and they feed all along the the Louisiana coast in the estuaries and the like. Uh, and occasionally they get into Lake Pontchartrain, and uh, people see them when they're out sailing, uh, or, uh, uh, and when they see them, sometimes they're likely to catch them if they're small enough, and then they want somebody to take them off their hands. Oh, gosh. Uh, we try to explain to them that you shouldn't mess with sea turtles, but, uh, but, but they do. Uh, sometimes the Audubon Zoo takes them if, if they need any rehabilitation and uh, makes sure that they're re-released into the Gulf of Mexico. 
Look at the brown pelican. Look at the brown pelican. It's right here. It's riding right along next to us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's riding declivity oh currents. Oh, my gosh. That, yeah, we talked about that in Episode 8. Absolutely. It's riding It's riding the, the bent wind, if you will, coming across the lake and turning up. And it's just figured out that I can float on that thing across without ever flapping my wings. What a wonderful day. Those people behind us probably are wondering what we're doing, slow, going slower <laughs> and looking at these birds. Well, when you drive across the causeway, you need to keep your eyes open for birds. Yep. You know, even if you're an amateur birder and you're just learning a few things here and there, uh, you'll see a lot of birds. And they'll be flying on the declivity currents like we talked about in Episode 8. Uh, or they'll be sitting on there. There are 19 um, uh, uh, booster houses out there where it's boosting electricity to get it across the, the causeway for the needs that they have ah, out there. That's what that is, huh? Yeah. It, it's almost every mile. Yeah, yeah. They're, very, they're, they're small little buildings. They've almost always got birds sitting always. on top they of them. Always have birds yeah. on them and yeah. lots of bird poop. So there's evidence that, oh, that too. the birds are sitting there. And, and it's also kind of fun for a, an amateur naturalist to, to realize they're always facing on every house, their feet, they're facing the same way. Because when they're sitting there, they have to face into the wind. Mm -hmm. So the wind blows over their bodies. If they turn their backs to the wind, then it's going to lift their feathers. And I've actually seen birds temporarily turn and roll off the top of the house oh, uh, just when I'm driving across. But it's really a, a, a very fun thing to see uh, how many birds actually use uh, the causeway and there's there's one event here that's that's for years and years and years and years and years was a major ritual in in New Orleans that uh, around January February the purple martins start coming in Ooh, from yeah. from South America and uh, first the scouts come in that are scouting out the area then the males come in and they start finding the the martin houses and things and kind of scoping them out but at night they go out and they roost underneath the causeway at the south end and near the north end and uh, uh and then the females start coming in well, when the females come in they match up with their mates and they go go to a net build a nest and they actually nest in people's backyards and other places and parks and the like and uh uh, but and then the the males are with them during the day. They help them build a nest. They do everything else. But at night, the males go sleep under the bridge. Oh, so it's only the males that come back to the bridge? Because I remember clearly when I was in high school and even college, yeah. um, growing up right near the levee right mm -hmm. there and being at Lakeside Country Club mm -hmm. and um, and playing tennis or uh -huh. being in the swimming pool and seeing all these birds, and then you taking us to the end of the causeway to see. Uh -huh. At the height of the summer, there were about 100,000 birds that would come in every night and just kind of, it was almost like they were dancing. They were doing a dance, like coming in and um, and then flying back up and then coming in and flying back up. And they would do this little ritualistic thing. And then right, you know, there was this cue or whatever it was that, that they all sensed it was time. And they would all basically just go under the bridge and, and roost there. Right. Um, so that's only males. Yeah. Did not well, know that. Well, that it's always males at the beginning. At the beginning. Okay. So what happened? happens is as you progress into the summer as they're fledging birds out of the nest at some point those birds start coming to get under the ah, expressway as learn. well they learn they well they they just follow and they all and and that's when and then they start building now remember at the same time during the summer birds are coming down from as far away as Canada moving toward the edge of the Gulf of Mexico to launch to get all the way to South America where they spend 
spend their uh, their winter. So what happens is that the populations grow and okay. grow and grow up to about 100,000 back in the day. R- recently, they haven't quite been that big, but they grow up like that. And so so the ritual in New Orleans is to go out there at night at 8 o'clock, yeah. be there at 8 o'clock, and in the next 15 minutes, you're going to see the dance. Yeah. And you can go and, just stand on the levee on either side of the yeah. Causeway Bridge. No, it's a classic thing. You stand there, and everybody's going. You'll hear people that haven't been there before. They go, well, I thought the birds were here. I don't see any birds. And then somebody will say, there's, there's a bird. bird. Yeah. And then somebody else says, well, there's another one. And then all of a sudden, you're surrounded there by birds. Know. They come yeah. in at the same time. but uh, uh, And then they all launch, and they're gone. And they're gone well, until January when they start dribbling back in. Well, and then – but also – one of the things that I can remember clearly was that some of the Purple Martins would get hit. So you and some others yeah. went to the Expressway Commission and um, said, you know, we've got to do something about this. So I remember y'all set up a park so people could be more comfortable when they were looking at the birds, but also to keep them from hitting cars or cars hitting them, really. Y'all put up chain link fence yeah. along the edge of the um, bridge on either end. So for people who drive that every day might not have n- ever noticed it or it's always been there for them, that's the reason why there is chain link right. fence. And it's right. to keep, when the birds see that, they go up instead of going across and getting hit by cars. And I think that's just a really cool and very yeah. easy way to um, conserve a species like that. Yeah, there, there, there were a number of people that sort of formed uh, a Purple Martin group and they were the ones that really pushed that through and made it happen. But it didn't hurt that Carlton Show, who used to be, for years and years and years, was the executive director of the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation, is now the director of the New Orleans Expressway Commission. There you go. And so, so. he does. He's very, very sensitive to anything animal out there. Yeah. And so he, he has uh, played a major role in that. Um, that's cool. That's a great story. And um, yeah. tell us about cormorants. I think well, cormorants are cool. And can we talk about anhingas too, since they're... Yeah, but they're not out there. They're not out there, but no. people confuse them all the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's... Easy so, to tell apart. All right. Well, tell cormorants yeah. first since it fits. Well, cormorants are a large black bird. Uh, we've got two species in the area, not necessarily on the causeway, but we've got uh, double-crested cormorants and neotropical cormorants uh, in South Louisiana. And, uh, and they're abundant along the causeway when you're driving across. You'll see lots of them sitting on those boosters. And it's a big bird. Yeah, so they're, they're pretty good size. I mean, they're, they're uh, what would I compare them to? I mean, they're bigger than a gull. Bigger than a gull. Not as big as a pelican. Right, exactly. Solid black. Sort of in between. That's, that's good. And uh, this is one of those interesting birds that doesn't have good oil glands. And so when they're, they, and they, they swim underwater to get their prey, they actually fly with their wings underwater. And uh, when they come out, they have to crawl out, and they'll, wi- they'll spread their wings wide and just sit there to let them dry off. Now, they can fly as soon as they come out of the water, but it's going to be very awkward and very difficult for them. So they because traditionally, the water's heavy yeah, on, their, on yeah, their feathers. Because they, they, they're all soaked. So they traditionally sit there and dry themselves. And hingas do the same thing. But what's the difference in the two? Well, there's a different pattern, but the anhinga is primarily a black bird. It's got some white on it. Uh, on the wings and everything. But if you look at the beak on them, they, their beak is is pointed, and they actually will spear fish with that beak mm. and then come to the surface and throw it up and grab it and swallow them, whereas the cormorant has a little uh, tip on the end that uh, uh, 
uh, at the end of the beak. Kind of projects down. Yes, it projects down and uh, helps them hold their prey when they when they bring it up. So uh, it's real easy for an amateur birder to, to look at, at pictures of these things and figure out how to tell them apart, yeah. even at 65 miles an hour. Yeah. So cormorants, though, are going to be on, uh, you're going to see them as you're crossing the lake, yeah. but yeah. not anhingas. No, anhingas are more of a swamp bird. Uh they're getting so common now that they're spreading out a little bit into new areas, but you expect to find them in swamps. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dogri, Poldu. Yeah. How oh, do you, yeah. How, yeah, tell us about those yeah. and what the other names are. Yeah. Well, we get sometime during the winter, you drive across and you're amazed at gigantic rafts of birds floating on the water that are kind of hanging out out there. So... Um, uh, uh, Dogri and, and Puldu, those are... Are those the local names? Cajun names, okay, Cajun, Cajun names for them. But uh, they're, um, and all of a sudden I can't remember the names of them. Scop and Coot? Oh, yeah, Scop and Coot, good. Um, American or, Coot. Oh, I've got it on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, but Dogri and, and Puldu are out there. The Dogri are Scop. There's two species actually that are here, but one of them is more common. And then the puldu is the American coot, which is a little black bird with a white, uh, white bill on it. And um, so they're, they can be a seriously abundant out there. Uh, so that's always fun. Call well, them we a raft, raft of birds. Or a so raft of, of birds, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, those are really cool. And um, so, so there are a lot of birds out there. So for anybody who's interested in birds and just likes to look at them, it's, it's look, look. There are thousands and thousands of cars that cross that causeway every day. Every day, yeah. And they've got this chance to learn something about nature as they go. Let me ask you again. You mentioned bottlenose dolphin earlier, yeah. and um, and the manatee, specifically yeah. the West Indian manatee. How mm-hmm. likely are we to see those? I mean, how often? I know we've yeah. people have um, observed them and they've reported yeah. them, but how likely is it that we can go out there and find them? Very difficult. Okay. And very but accidental, you, but it's really s- cool if you see them. If you see something out there that's moving like a manatee uh, or moving like a dolphin, yeah. and you say, hey, I think that's a dolphin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely could be, but oh, it's absolutely. not likely you're going to see them. Absolutely, yeah. But if you're in a, if you're a, a sailing out there, or you're boating, or you're fishing, or something like that, you're more likely to see them. Okay. Let's move on and talk a little bit about, um, we mentioned earlier, and, and you mentioned earlier about in the 80s, and um, the, the lake was pretty polluted, um, and, you know, different reasons as to why. I just want to bring up the word eutrophication, eutrophication. Mm-hmm. And, and if you'll talk about it, because I think it's an important component of um, crossing the lake mm-hmm. to talk about. But also, I think a lot of people, if, they're, if they don't know about our water and why our water is, is so brown and churned up and things like that, they think of dirt, you know, dirty yeah. or polluted. And when really it's, you know, our waters are so full of organisms and food, like you mentioned before. And um, so they tend to, you know, have low oxygen, but that's because they have a lot of organisms. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us about eutrophication. Well, eutrophication is that magical environmental word of about 1970. Now, it was an older word than that, but that's when it became part of the vernacular in the United States. And you remember 1970 was 
the official beginning of the environmental movement. Yes. I mean, it actually in began, Week followed began in the yeah. 60s in earnest, but that's that's when you had the first uh, Earth Day. And, uh, and also, if you look in those first few years of the 70s, an awful lot of major, major, major environmental uh, laws were passed in Congress, and everybody became acutely aware that there were problems in the environment. And um, eutrophication is a word that simply means that by putting certain things, especially phosphorus, into the water, uh, it's like pouring fertilizer in. And so what happens is the byproduct is, the unintended consequence is, that you get big blooms of algae. And you might say, well, that's okay. Algae is native. Yeah, it's, it's out there anyway. But when it gets too dense, what happens is it not only uh, multiplies itself and reproduces, but it also dies. And when it dies, as it decomposes, it consumes oxygen. So when you get a eutrophicated body of water, all the oxygen is consumed and you get big fish die-offs. And so it, that might be from some of these unregulated uh, dairies, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. maybe some uh, outfall yeah. canals and things yeah. like that. The, the, the sewage plants in Metairie, for gosh sake, literally, I mean, there was a, uh, a letter sent by EPA to, to Metairie saying, Metairie is a suburb of New Orleans, yeah. saying, uh, guys, uh, your su your sewage treatment plants are putting raw sewage in the lake. If you don't solve this by a certain date, we're going to come down there and turn out the lights. Oh, geez. <laughs> and guess what? We found the money to do it. Wow. <laughs> but they were just ignoring everything before that. What? So that's been cleaned up. And, yeah. and it's happened all around the lake with the dairies. And uh, uh, the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation was pivotal in this. And they were the that, ones yeah. that sat on top of everybody and just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. But all the environmental groups in our area did that. Uh, and a lot of civic groups and a lot of citizens that just cared about the quality of life pushed those those issues also. But we, we've we pretty much cleaned it up. Yeah. We've still got problems. Well, but we're an urban area, and you always have problems in an urban area. Sure. Um, well, let's, let's make a connection with the river and the lake again where um, – we have a mechanism, human created from the uh, the 1920s, to protect the city of New Orleans when there are major floods, usually from runoff from spring snowfall, um, since we do sit at the base of the Mississippi River, um, and from also big heavy spring rain events, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the Bonnie Carey Spillway, yeah. and so that is um, a spillway that that will. Um, empty essentially a certain amount of water from the river to prevent it from overtopping the levees and flooding out the city but it empties into lake pontchartrain so how does that fit into this discussion and and with us looking at um lake pontchartrain as we cross the lake like how can we notice something that the spillway opening might have affected well in, in a positive yeah. or negative way well when when the spillway is is open and operating 250,000 cubic feet per second of water is flowing through there from the river. Wow. Uh, you see all sorts of things from the causeway. You'll see big floats of, of duckweed, which is a freshwater plant that just doesn't live in areas with any amount of salt whatsoever. Uh, sometime you'll see uh, uh, some dead mammals, rabbits and things like that that have drowned and floated out and they're floating on the surface of the water. Uh, you'll see more alligators out there, even though there are alligators in the lake often now because it's more fresh. But also, there are even times when that spillway is open that I hear frogs calling in the lake. Mm. 
normally there are no frogs out right. there because it's again too salty. Salty. So uh, so those are the main visual things that you see, but you also will see a, a change in the color because now the the the, the lake is reasonably clear. And, uh, and when that thing is open, it's putting brown water full of clay particles into the lake. And so the, it, it turns brown. And, and when I say t- brown, I'm talking about tan, yeah. more of a tan color. Um, okay, so let's kind of, we're getting near the end of this episode, and there's a couple more things though, that stand out that I think are important for people to think about and look at um, as they're crossing the lake and learning to be a naturalist and looking at nature in a certain way. And um, one of those is sometimes you'll look out at the lake, especially when it's um, it's not as, uh, when, when it's pretty smooth, and you see stripes. It almost mm-hmm. looks like, you know, just White stripes. You know, white stripes on the lake. Yeah. So tell us about what that is and, and what we can learn from it. Well, it's a phenomenon that you see in in uh, uh, wet areas, especially salt areas where there's a, a long fetch for the wind. We, we, we like to use that word. You know, the, the fetch is a, a basic distant area where the wind blows across the water. Yeah, I remember you talked about yeah. that in episode eight. Right. Uh, but uh, and, and you see that when you're going across the lake because some places along there, I guess you're probably 20 miles or more to the nearest shore on the east side. If the wind is blowing from, uh, I saw this recently, so I'll tell you this way. If it's blowing from the east or the northeast a little bit, uh, as the water, as the wind blows across the top, you think, well, that's probably having no effect on the lake or if it has an effect on the lake it's probably causing some waves on the top so i should see it, some white caps and, and in fact if it's really yeah. blowing strong enough you're going to see that yep. but just a good solid wind blowing for a persistent amount of time um, you'll see these parallel white stripes and what's happening is it's actually a phenomenon that engineers call langmuir l-a-n-g-m-u-i-r circulation and what's happening is the wind comes across, it sets up this, this turbulence in the surface, not very deep, but sort of a, a, a turning column of water on the surface. And when it does that, it takes water from the top and mixes it into the bottom. And one of the th- effects is that sometimes it captures anything floating in the water. If there's a lot of debris in the water, uh, even styrofoam and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I've noticed it, that before. You're going to see it c- kind of getting focused in the middle hmm. there, and um, uh, and and it and we actually take advantage of that offshore. Uh, when you, if, if I'm a fisherman and I want to go offshore and fish for sport fish, uh, I'll go out far enough where I'll find some. Uh, some Langmuir circulation and there's ah, a bunch of and then uh, you go and yeah there's a bunch right of stuff there. floating on the surface and guess who's hiding underneath mm-hmm. sport fish uh, oh. and you'll see some certain offshore birds walking on top of it it's just nothing but amazing hmm. and a lot of fun to do because you, uh, you sea turtles yeah. you see sea turtles floating in it and so, uh, and so you can do this. I mean, if you're driving no. across the lake, you're not going to yeah, obviously. No. But now you know what those stripes are. But if you're ever in yeah. a boat, a canoe, or something like that on the lake, yeah, you can go up there and look for things. Yeah, neat. Um, water spouts. 
Well, we do see a lot of water spouts on the lake. We've actually seen a couple in the last week or two. Yeah. And uh, uh, they rarely come on the land to cause any problems. They usually fizzle out before they get on land. But, uh, again, it's a, it is a phenomenon much like a tornado, not as powerful as a tornado. And, um, uh, and, and uh, places like South Florida, they see them often. A lot, yeah. And, and we actually see them pretty often in Lake Pontchartrain. And uh, and the good news is you can outrun them if you're in a boat, uh, and you should <laughs> never get <laughs> you should never get close to them because they could do real damage to yeah. you in a boat. But uh, b- but they're out in the Gulf of Mexico as well, and um, uh, and they're always reported on on local news when you, yep. somebody's always going to send in pictures and yep. you're going to see them. One time I was at a meeting at about this was would have been six thirty in the evening in the summer on the 35th floor downtown and floor-to-ceiling windows and we were standing there talking and I looked out to the lake and I saw seven water spouts at one time ranging in size from huge to something that looked like a thread that came down and did a little twisty in the middle and went down to the water. And uh, uh, so there are times when we get quite a few of them. Mm-mm-mm. But they're, they're a wonderful phenomenon. And if uh, some of you don't live around water where you have water spouts, you should Google them and read a little bit about them. Yeah. All right. So um, tell us about what you refer to as the elusive green flash. Yeah, yeah. Tell that's, me about it. That's really cool. And I've never seen it. And I don't – I really – not sure I know anybody who has. Okay. But there's a phenomenon. That's why it's elusive. It's a, that's why it's <laughs> elusive. But it's, um, uh, it, it's, I am told that people have seen when you're looking across the lake to the west at the end of the day when the sun is going down, that if, you're, if there's nothing between you and where that's happening, that the moment, literally, the moment that the, the top of the sun dips below the horizon – if you're really, really lucky, you'll see for about two seconds a green flash. And what's happening is that's refraction of light. You know, green is in the spectrum of light. Yeah. But you're seeing this red thing go down. And at that angle, if you're in the right place at the right time, you'll see this bright green flash for about a second or two. And uh, uh, that's, that's why we call it elusive. You just hmm. don't see it very much here. If you want to see it, if you're going to San Diego, they see it more in San Diego than any other place. But look where they are. They're in Southern California. They're looking out over the vast Pacific Ocean. All right. So the connection (laughs) here, though, is if you happen to get lucky and you happen to be out there and it happens to be an incredible um, sunset, keep your eye on the sunset until it's totally gone and you might get you a might get that shot of Elizabeth. Okay, two seconds doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot when you see that green flash. Yes. All right. So people who live on the South Shore that don't venture across the lake very often, um, there's a prize on the other side, right? So oh, yeah. if this episode doesn't encourage you enough to get on the causeway and drive across and 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 learn about nature from you know what we've been talking about. Tell us about that prize that's at the other end because it's really cool. Well, it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Okay. <laughs> this also this one al- of the pots of gold. This also um, fits in with what you were saying earlier about um, the divide of organisms and you know how some things don't cross. So we refer to things as like being the biggest on the east side of the river and the west side of the river and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, well, this what you see when you go across the other side. 
and you have to do a little pathfinding. But you, uh, as you approach the, the North Shore, coming across from, from Metairie, uh, as you approach the land, the neighborhoods to the left are part of Mandeville, officially, but they're called Lewisburg. They call themselves Lewisburg. You know, it's a historical neighborhood. And, uh, and if you turn left into there, uh, you can find your way back and just Google this address. And I'm going to give you in a minute, I'm going to give you a paper that, that gives you the address as well. But uh, you, you will find a house where you can stop on the street in front of the house. Don't go inside <laughs> private <laughs> right, property. Right. But you'll see the biggest live oak in Louisiana. Cool. Now, in Louisiana, we have something called the Live Oak Society. And a tree has to be a certain size, and you've got to give it a name when you register it with the Live Oak Society. And there's one human associated with the Live Oak Society, and she does the stuff that a tree can't do. Which is? But, which is signing documents okay. and keeping okay. files and things like so that. So what's the name of this but, uh, gold but the, at the end of the, the well, it's, bridge? It, it's the um, Seven Sisters Oak. It's the largest one in Louisiana. And by the way, the fun thing about the Live Oak Society is that the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer, all the officers of the Live Oak Society are by size. So the Seven Oaks, the sister, uh, uh, Seven Oaks, Seven Sisters Oak, I'm sorry. And so the Seven Sisters Oak is the largest one. So it's the president of the Live Oak oh, Society. Oh, fun. Love it. Well, that certainly was a super fun um, discussion about this. And I want the listeners to realize that if that inspires you and gets you excited, oh, don't worry. Dr. Bob has written an occasional paper about this. And it started off as like a 30-page document, which is really long anyway. But it's now about, what, 80 pages as he continues to add information as he learns more. So tell the listeners how they can find your occasional paper about uh, a naturalist crosses the lake. Yeah, it's, it's on our website. Uh, as, as M.A. will always tell you at the end of this uh, what that website is. But it's L-U-C-E-C dot L-O-Y-N-O dot E-D-U. If you go there and look under Natural History Publications, you'll see a list of what we call occasional papers of LUSEC. And uh, there's a number of, right now I think there's five, uh, even though one of them is going to go up in the next day or two. Uh, there's about five topics that are fun to read. And this one, the title of this one is called A Naturalist Crosses Lake Pontchartrain. Love it. And it'll have all the things that we talked about in greater detail. Yes. We couldn't talk about them in detail on, on a podcast. But, uh, but it'll also, you know, if you want the address of the, of the Seven Sisters Oak, if you uh, uh, want to read more about... Um, anything. Anything. Yeah. It's on there. Well, the, our podcast is the Cliff Note version of that for you old That's people it. that are you're <laughs> old enough to remember Cliff Note versions. Right. All you youngins, you don't know what those are. And ask your parents, grandparents. Well, we want to thank you for joining us to learn what a naturalist is doing while crossing the lake. You think they're driving across the lake? Oh, no. They are looking at the white lines, wondering what it is, looking at the birds, trying to identify them, seeing what birds they can find, taking advantage of the declivity current, etc., etc. 
So there's so much to see and learn once you know how to look at nature from a different perspective. And so we hope that you're getting inspired to get outside and do some of these things through our podcast. You can find out more information about the topics and species we discussed today and more resources for naturalists by following us on social media at SoNatPodcast and on our website that Dr. Bob just gave you. It's the Loyola University Center for Environmental Communication, L-U-C-E-C dot L-O-Y-N-O dot E-D-U. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and write a review if you enjoyed it. Until next time. And don't forget, get out and enjoy finding the treasures of nature.